0: There was a time when we were living in a motel and we had just moved into another one. And my brother and I got happy because this one had a TV. That memory just like, it bothers me that I was that used to, you know, that kind of lifestyle that I was like basically ranking the motels at that point.
1: Some of these kids have had to grow up pretty fast. If You know, they've had to take on responsibilities. A lot of the young people I've interviewed are carers. You know, they care for their parents who, who may be disabled or out of work or have mental health problems. And, you know, they want a place where they can go and talk about this stuff because this is what's important to them. You know, and another kid beside them might have some other thing that's important. But you just get a sense of a space where what do you care about right now, and what do you want to say about it?
2: One of the biggest fallacies, I think, that's floating out there is that um, uh, parents in the city, city parents, don't care about their kids' education. They care about the kids' education dramatically. Um, They are often um, working a lot, And dealing with a lot of uh, personal family issues. But as soon as we announce a new location, we're filled up immediately. We have wait lists immediately.
1: These attitudes that we have toward people. From poorer backgrounds, um, especially if at some point their families had to ask for help from the welfare system or had to go to a food bank, you know, there's a there's a an extreme shame and shaming that comes with that.
0: We had left um, Philly when I was when I had just finished third grade because mm-hmm. you know my mom had just gotten out of a marriage and she could no longer afford to pay the mortgage on the house alone. so we ended up moving in with one of her friends. and then that situation didn't turn out as as uh, good as we thought it could. And we ended up moving out of there and we were kind of just you know in and out of uh, shelters and motels, like in Florida. She ended up having a friend that we can move in with back in Philly. and that's why we came back. My name is Richard Trey Jenkins. I live in West Philadelphia, and I started at Mighty Writers, and I go to Harvard now. So at that point, there was some, uh, you know, low income housing agency that my mom was working with at the time that was uh, allowing us to be able to, like, you know, pay really cheap rent at apartments and stuff. But before that, we were literally living in a shelter in Germantown.
1: We have created a culture where we have lower expectations of kids from those sorts of backgrounds. And you get labeled quickly. You know, you're called dysfunctional or troubled.
0: You know, it was tough. There, there's, there's, you know, times when you can't eat because, you know, we just don't have it. For the most part, I kind of ignored it because, I'm. Um, It made me, like, really adaptable. And so I have this thing where, like, I'm just really good at being able to adjust to whatever the situation is and accept it. So, you know, that could be a good or bad thing. But in this instance, it was a good thing because I was able to just, you know, kind of forget all the outside stuff and just live life how it was. By the time I got back to Philly, so, you know, fifth, sixth grade, I started actually thinking, you know, well, what's gonna happen, you know, next year the year after you know how's how's my family gonna you know keep moving on because i started realizing you know okay this is a normal you know my friends out here um you know going back to their houses and we're going back to a shelter around sixth grade is when i decided yeah this is this is about as far as it goes I knew I wanted to have like kids, and I didn't want my kids to live that way. At that point, I just kind of made my entire like life being about doing super well in school so that I could earn enough money to take care of myself and my mom.
1: The common narrative is that, well, You're not working hard, if you were working hard enough then your kids would be doing fine and you'd be doing fine. But actually if you're working 16 hours a day in two jobs, how much time have you got to read stories to your kids and to to do this for them?
2: That up by the bootstraps narrative is one that we hear a lot and um, it it holds no meaning for me, you know. One of the biggest fallacies I think that's floating out there is that um, Uh, Parents in the city, city parents, don't care about their kids' education. They care about the kids' education dramatically. Um, They are often um, uh, working a lot um, and dealing with a lot of uh, personal family issues. But as soon as we announce a new location, we're filled up immediately. We have waiting lists immediately.
0: I just moved in the neighborhood, actually just a few blocks away, and my mother was looking for something for me to do after school because up until that point, I kind of just stayed in the house and she came across mighty writers and I was actually really interested in writing at that point. I've been like writing you know small stories uh, since the sixth grade, and she took me there for like an interview they invited me to join uh from there it just ended up being something I went to every day you know Monday through thursday and It was great for me because I was able to make friends that were outside of school for the first time. But then also I was able to work on writing skills that I wasn't really too fond of, such as like actual academic type writing. And yeah, I was there for a year as a student and then I think both ninth and tenth grade I volunteered there.
1: But when the kids get to the point where they're writing, they're putting things together, what kinds of stories do they want to write? Um, what kinds of topics do they are they drawn to? And are there some of those subjects that are, you know, difficult for them to talk about? Like their circumstance? Because we all talk about our own circumstances. So.
0: Right. I started uh, writing short stories in the 6th grade. It was action stories. It was fun for me, though, because, you know, I started in sixth grade, and I ended up, like, having my friends read them out of a little notebook that I was writing them in, and they, like, loved that. And they would, like, be pressuring me to write another chapter or whatever. The story that I started writing that year, it was called Ricky Nine. On the surface, it had nothing to do with me, but I think, on a lower level, the main character represented some of my inner rage. And so, things that I wouldn't do, you know, the character do he lashed out at certain people when he wanted to that kind of thing so it helped me be able to get that out in a way because i was able to get out my anger in this you know kind of mellow way i was able to like keep those feelings down as I, as i pressed forward
1: do they ever spontaneously talk about personal circumstances at home, or is that something that is still a very difficult thing for them?
2: They do. I mean, the um, uh, I had one student come in to me um, a year or so ago, and she closed the door, and she said, um, her father had come home from uh, Iran 10 years ago or so, committed suicide. And she came in, closed the door, and she said, um, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, yes. And she said, um, I'm really having these terrible dreams uh, that I wake up and I hate my father, I hate him for abandoning me. And the very next day I'll wake up and I miss him so much. I love him so much. And she's, you know, she said, is that normal? I said, is normal as against, right? So the fact that she was able to articulate all that and, and have clarity about it, I think it was wonderful, you know?
0: While I was there, I kind of felt like I was sort of a mentor in some ways, it kind of helped me feel like I had some sort of greater importance.
2: Uh, We really believe that if you can get kids to think clearly and write with clarity and begin to express themselves, you can start to turn them around. You can see self-esteem start to change, you can see their personalities change, and they begin to think that there's a road to success here.
0: 11th grade, I got an email from, you know, Harvard's, you know, promotional team or whatever, uh, inviting me to apply. And so, you know, I was showing it to all my friends and everybody celebrating, like, oh, this guy is actually, you know, smart this, second third. Although, you know, my marriage were good, comparatively speaking, when it came to Philly, you know, there's people from way better school systems that just do so much better because they've had this opportunity, you know, that kind of thing. Because on paper, my application may not be that strong to a bunch of people, especially with me moving around and just the fact that there are so many negatives potentially about my application. The essay, I feel like, is what stood out and made up for a lot of those because it showed that even though, you know, I had gone through all of this stuff, I was able to persevere and still develop you know, skills. Without Mighty Riders, I wouldn't have been able to conduct a good enough essay to impress Harvard.
1: I mean, it's always a difficult question, but what is your definition of success for these youngsters and for this program?
2: You know, for number one, that they're happy. And usually happiness means that they're on some kind of road to success. That success can be a trade, that success can be Harvard, they can, or anything in between. But that's the most important thing, that their, their self-esteem has been built up and they're happy.
1: I think a lot of youngsters internalize those negative perceptions because it's a way of coping with the difficulty of trying to override it. Because it's, it's tough to get out of those circumstances. It, not just financially, but psychologically, emotionally, it's, it's tough. And you have to convince yourself you're made of the kind of stuff that will get you through it.
0: You always make assumptions. You make assumptions every day. You know, what kind of person that is you see on the street, what kind of life they lead. But you may not know what drove them to get to that point. And there's all kinds of nuances in everyone's story. You know, if you don't understand someone like they should be understood, then you'll just live on the assumptions you already made about them.
1: You can dream and wish for these things and understand the power that your voice has and that your story matters. If you give young people the space and the tools to do it, um, you know, their minds aren't closed yet. And even if, even if you're like from my kind of background and you're nervous and, you know, you, you feel intimidated by the people around you, you know, once you open your mouth and start saying things, it turns out that good stuff comes out. So, what are you doing here today?
0: The school system really didn't help me out that much. And so having gained that stuff from Mighty Riders, a place that was, you know, free, it just helped out so much you know, now I'm able to appreciate that kind of thing and realize how much I want to, you know, put that back into the community. Maybe I'll
1: get a photograph of how far you've got before I leave. Thank you so much.
0: Right On is a production by Project Twisted, Sandra Barron, and Little Everywhere, and executive produced by Mary O'Hara. Music is composed by Jessica Huber. It's supported by the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. Please check out more at projecttwistit.com.